Well, hello, and welcome to the EC2 deep dive session. I know this is a, a later session in the day, and thank you for attending. Hopefully, uh, you get a lot out of this session, and it's uh, worth missing dinner or beers or what have you to be here. So my name is Mark Duffield. I'm the worldwide tech lead uh, focusing on semiconductors, which means I help customers move their workloads over to AWS uh, that are focused on the semiconductor space. Last uh, time I did this presentation on Monday, I got some feedback that um, I was speaking really super fast. So I'm going to try to slow down and fill the entire hour. So hopefully I'm not flying through the material like I did on Monday. But that said, if you have any critical feedback, I'm definitely open to it. <laughs> OK. This works this time. OK. So this is what we'll cover today. Um, I'm going to touch a little bit on infrastructure. This is a 300-level talk, so I'm going to expect you guys to know uh, a fair amount of, uh, about our infrastructure. I'll dive into our instances, uh, talk about the characteristics, uh, some choices there, hypervisors, uh, bare metal. Uh, but then this section here, the performance section, is where we're going to spend quite a bit of our time. So talking about how you can get the best performance uh, out of your applications, your tools, on AWS. And Hopefully what you leave here is with a good understanding and a tool set of how to approach that, right? So um, there's going to be a lot of content. There's going to be a lot of information in this talk. And I'm not expecting you to, uh, um, for you guys to you know, memorize all this stuff. You know, I'm, what I'm trying to give you is some pointers and some information to where you can take back, you can start doing some, some tuning and some permutations and some trial and error to figure out how you can get the best performance for your applications on AWS. So we'll be spending quite a bit of time there. And then lastly, I'll actually speak to some of the spe uh, specific tools that I have found to be very handy and useful in uh, troubleshooting and performance tuning. So infrastructure. So AWS has 18 regions, 55 availability zones, and we have uh, announced five more regions with uh, 15 more availability zones in those additional regions. We also have a global edge network that's made up of over 100 points of presence. And this is across 62 uh, cities and 29 different countries. Diving a little bit deeper, this is a region that has multiple availability zones. So each region uh, will, will have multiple AZs, but most regions will have three, with some as many as six. And then with each in, uh, within each one of those availability zones is our data centers. And we have one or multiple data centers there. OK, so we're done with infrastructure. And um, again, as this is a 300-level talk, let's get straight to instances. So this is how we actually name our instance types. And many of you are probably familiar with this, but on the the left side here is the family name. And what that represents in this case, this is the C5D. And the C in this case is uh, for compute optimized. And we have several different kinds of uh, optimizations for our instances. And the name is usually a pretty close match for what that optimization is. The five here represents the fifth generation of this instance type. So this is our fifth generation of compute instance types. The D is an, addi uh, excuse me, an additional capabilities. And um, if you guys saw Peter's talk on Monday and some of the other announcements that we've had come out, you can see that we're actually leveraging this more with our instance types to give customers a good indication that um, the base instance type, you know, a C5, will have some additional capabilities along with it, whether that's a D. In this case, the D means that there's local NVMe drives that are physically attached to the server. And if you guys saw the announcement about the network enhancements that we made. Um, so in any case, uh, something to pay attention as you look at our instance types. Uh, the right side here, you'll see the actual size of the instance. The size of the instance is comprised of the compute, memory, storage, and networking that you're going to get on the instance. And so the more of those resources that you get, the bigger the name is going to, to be. So in this case, this is our second type, our second largest instance type for this family. So this is the C5D 9x large. We also have the C5D 18x large as well. 
And so I'm going to also quickly note here our hypervisors. So currently we have uh, a Zen-based hypervisor, and we also have a KVM-based hypervisor. And then you also have the option of choosing no hypervisor with bare metal instances. And the last two here, the KVM-based hypervisor, no hypervisor, are going to be enabled by our Nitro system. And I spend quite a bit of time there and give you um, hopefully some good information there and what you need to do if you're going to be using Nitro-based instances. Oops, I'm going to point this this way. Okay. So on AWS, you can run virtually nearly or uh, nearly any workload, and uh, whether that's a you know a general-purpose workload, burst-able workloads, compute-intensive, memory-intensive workloads, um, and that's all being enabled by the, the the capabilities that we have. So the processor selection, as you may have heard in Peter's talk, we announced ARM-based processors on AWS, right? But we still have Intel, we still have AMD processors as well. And we also have processors that go up to four gigahertz, a sustained four gigahertz, which is the fastest in, in any of the cloud providers. And we also have high memory footprint with instances of, of 12 terabytes. It's 12 terabytes. I remember programming on my Commodore 64K that didn't even have persistent storage. So, you know, it's crazy to think about some of the instance types and some of the capabilities we'd have at AWS. And what this is all leading to. Oh, and I will, before I move on to that, is I will mention again uh, the networking announcement that we made on Monday um, with our EFA and the 100 gigabits network. And I do dive into that a little bit more. Um, but what that all leads to is 175 different instance types that allow you to run virtually nearly uh, any workload on AWS. And speaking of more choices, right, so if you're thinking about the, you know, balancing cost optimization with performance and making sure that you're running the right processors. So we now have four processors on AWS, Intel, NVIDIA, AMD, and the recently announced ARM. And what that means is that you're now able to choose the right compute, the right platform, the right instance types for your workload um, and gives you a, a good deal of flexibility to be able to optimize those workloads on AWS. More choices, okay? So with the NVIDIA, um, uh, the, the, the NVIDIA Volta card, so allows for deep learning, but also allows for GPU accelerated computing as well. And then our FPGA instance type, so our F1. If you're, if, um, you know, this is, uh, you know, specific to the semiconductor industry, but, you know, if you're thinking about prototyping a chip or if you're already doing FPGA work before and you needed to just bring up something to be able to, to test that FPGA uh, um, bit stream, what have you, to be able to uh, load this up quickly. You don't have to worry about going out about um, buying a big server to be able to load it up with the FPGAs that you'll need. You can bring one up on AWS in literally minutes. And in this case, we also have a developer AMI that supports this and enables this acceleration very quickly. So lots of choices on AWS, okay? Um, and to that, uh, we have these uh, two hypervisors that we currently have. We have a Zen-based hypervisor, and we have a KVM-based hypervisor. Um, we also, again, have a bare metal hypervisor. Now, the KVM-based hypervisor came along with our, uh, our Nitro announcements that we actually made last year, this time reInvent. And um, with that, I'll dive into this just a little bit. Um, so this is the original EC2 architecture. Um, what you'll see here is that everything is on the server, right? So the storage, the memory, management, monitoring, security, everything is on the server, which means that it's taking the resources of the server as well. That meant that we can't actually give you guys all those resources. We actually had to use those resources to be able to divide up the instances and what have you. Well, what the goal was is to, to maintain security or improve security where we can, improve the performance, but also uh, keep it a, a familiar environment that customers would recognize. And what that resulted in is this, uh, the specialized piece of hardware called Nitro. And what the Nitro system gives you now is all of this is now offloaded onto the, you know, the networking, storage, management, monitoring, security is all offloaded onto the specialized piece of hardware. And what that leaves instead is now a thin KVM-based layer on, on the server. So 
all those resources that we were taking before, we've now given back to the customer. So what that results in is nearly 100% of the resources being given to the customer. And um, a quick call out here to uh, our Annapurna Labs team. So Annapurna Labs is a, a company that we acquired about four years ago. Um, they are our, our semiconductor design team. So Amazon is also a fabulous semiconductor. So we designed this chip, and that's the chip that's actually part and runs the, actually not part of, but actually is the main part of the uh, nitro base system. So with the nitro system, you're getting the nitro card, you're getting the, the hypervisor, as I spoke, the KVM-based hypervisor. But in addition to all of that, you're also getting this nitro security chip that's going to be embedded onto the, mother, onto the motherboard. And something that's, that may not be as tangible, so you're, you're getting all these great benefits directly of the nitro system, but something that's actually helping us is that this allows for us to have a more modular building block uh, to actually build out and innovate our instance types. So because we're designing all of this, we're actually, we actually know what direction to take it. We actually are able to think about the next instance type based on the technology that we're designing. So to be able to get to the next instance family or add instances to another family is going to be a simpler task for us because we're actually designing uh, the underlying systems. And there's also uh, another feature of Nitro, and I know I'm spending some time on Nitro, but it will be important, and as you'll see in the AMI and the OS information. Um, with bare metal, you're also getting this, uh, this feature as well with Nitro as well. So you're getting direct hardware access, but you're also still getting all the benefits of cloud computing as well. This was the first instance, the C5, was, our, was the first instance uh, of this new generation, so the first Nitro-based instance. And just some comparisons here and some call-outs. So uh, this has the Intel Skylake processor, 3 gigahertz base with a turbo boost of up to 3.5 uh, gigahertz, um, but it also supports AVX 512. So as it compares to the C4, if you're doing um, a floating point, double precision floating point or vector, you're actually going to see a 2x improvement as, as compared to the C4. Uh, but you're also getting uh, a lot of other things. So you're also getting C-state controls. You're getting 25 gigabits of network. You're getting a 14 gigabits uh, um, of EBS, so back to our storage. Um, and you're also getting double, in this, in this case, this is double the number of processors as well. So I'll dive into a little bit on what a vCPU is, but quickly, um, a vCPU in this case represents a thread. And uh, whenever you see vCPU, cut that number in half, and that's going to be the total number of physical cores. So in this case, the C5 uh, has 72 vCPUs, so that means that it has 36 physical cores. So now, we hopefully you guys have a, a solid foundation for infrastructure. Um, obviously, didn't spend too much time there, but I'm sure you guys have nailed that already. Instances, some, some characteristics there, thinking about our hypervisors. And, and when, I, when you guys are thinking about your instance types, I want you to think um, about, you know, is, is my instance type a newer instance type? Is it a nitro-based instance type? Am I still using uh, one of our uh, previous generation instance types with a Zen-based hypervisor? As we go through some of this material here, it will become important uh, to know which one you're on. Now, you can't. I, this is probably, you guys probably all know this, but just make this clear. You can't choose the, you know, your hypervisor, right? You, you choose an instance type and, and you get a hypervisor with it. So C48X large, Zenbase C5 Nitro, right? So you can't go in there and tweak and tune which hypervisor you get. So when we talk to customers about performance tuning, the first thing that all customers want to do, and you know, I've been in systems my whole life, and the first thing that I want to do is test with synthetic benchmarks. So the idea that you can get on a system, how fast is cache? You know, how fast is main memory actually going? I love to do I.O. benchmarks, right? But what we'd rather have you do, um, and, and yes, there's going to be maybe some cursory testing, but try to get to testing your applications as soon as possible. 
And if you're running your application with 10,000 cores on-prem, try to run it at scale on AWS as well. Maybe 1,000 cores, maybe 100 cores, what have you. But really try to get to the point to where you're testing your application in a very similar scenario to the way you're running it on-prem and try to do more of an apples-to-apples -apples comparison with AWS. And what we found is customers do that, that they find that they, they start to see the paths. Right? They start to see, okay, well, this is working and this isn't, rather than um, getting some potential misdirection with synthetic benchmarks. So really try to get your application on AWS uh, before or maybe in parallel as you're doing some of the synthetic benchmarks. So before you can choose your instance, right? I know we've talked about instance types here, but even before you can choose your instance, you need to figure out what your AMI is going to be. So the AMI is going to have the operating system, customizations, libraries, tools, whatever you need to be able to bring up that instance to the point where it's going to run your applications or run your environment. And um, it's, it's going to be uh, critical here, as you'll see in the next few slides here, but it's going to be critical that you're choosing the right AMI or the right operating system information for your instances when you're launching. So a few places that you can actually choose your AMI, um, from the console, from the marketplace, um, and I haven't updated this slide. I don't know if you guys have seen this. It's really cool, actually. Um, on the, uh, when you're actually going in to choose your AMI, we actually have uh, the ARM AMI information there, which I think is really exciting. But in any case, um, AMI, uh, excuse me, AWS console, marketplace, third-party vendors, you have your own AMI, you have a VMware image that you want to import, all kinds of ways to get your AMI into AWS. Uh, once you have that AMI, you can start building out things with commands, or you can use our SDKs. Um, and this is working. You can see down here on the bottom of this command, you see all you need is the, the AMI ID, and you can start building out your infrastructure really quickly. So there are several choices out there that actually have what you need to be able to build out your infrastructure that have um, some of the requirements that you need to run on both Nitro and Zen-based hypervisors. Um, and this is a list that I have, but uh, this link here at the bottom, point to here, I don't think I pointed here in a while, uh, but this link here at the bottom actually has a lot of this information on this uh, about these operating systems. But this is my recommended starting point. So if you're running any of these versions of operating systems, this is where I would start. Um, and I'll dive in a little bit more about Amazon Linux and uh, Amazon Linux 2 in the next slide. But um, please don't run on a, on a 2.6 kernel. Um, you're not going to see very good performance on AWS. And I'd be surprised if you're seeing very good performance on-prem as well. So you should see uh, as much as a 40% improvement by going to a more current kernel. And this is even just using 3.10. But now if you're start, starting to talk about going to a 4.0 kernel, so a 4.14 kernel like Amazon Linux 2 has, you can see potentially even more performance. So keep that in mind as you're uh, choosing your operating systems and you're choosing your AMIs. So this is Amazon Linux 2, right? So um, vendor support for Amazon Linux 2 is coming up to speed. We're working with all kinds of uh, partners on this and ISVs to, to support uh, Amazon Linux 2, but some great benefits that you get from Amazon Linux 2. And, um, uh, well, let me stop there. Um, if you're writing your own applications, if you have the ability to choose what direction you're going with your, with your operating system, I highly encourage you to test with Amazon Linux 2 if you're going to run on AWS. So that's it. Let me dive into a little bit more about the, the AMI itself. So, you're going to get lots of optimized um, uh, settings for AWS, and tools are, are already built in. So the AWS CLI is already there. If you're using CloudFormation and you're sending signals back uh, to let the, the stack know that your, uh, the, that your instances or resources are finished, whatever the configuration was, that's built in there as well. Um, if you want to actually uh, download this on on-prem and start hacking this and start getting something to work before you actually start moving workloads over to AWS, you can do that as well here, too. And it has five years of LTS and has ongoing uh, security and maintenance and updates. Um, and, oh, yeah, and one other thing. 
it's free. So there's that part. Um, so, you know, all you're going to be paying for is the resources that you're going to be spinning up with this, you know, with this AMI. So you're not going to be paying for this, uh, the, the operating system costs. So now we're going to shift a little bit into talking specifically about Nitro instances and what you're going to need to be able to run on Nitro instances. So one thing that um, you know, we're trying to do a really good job of messaging is letting customers know that before you can run on, on Nitro-based instances, you will have to have a few things uh, set up or installed. So uh, you will have to have the ENA drivers and the NVMe drivers installed, and the AMI will need to be enabled uh, for ENA support as well. If you don't have those, there's a good chance that the instance probably won't boot. Uh, now, that said, there are a couple of different options. The operating systems that I had before in that list, and obviously Amazon uh, Linux 2 and Amazon Linux is going to have what you need to launch uh, on, on a Nitro-based hypervisor. Um, Option two, which is more work, and depending on how far, how down rev you are, uh, could be considerably more work, um, is you can use different instance types. You can use, uh, excuse me, you can use an um, uh, image from an older instance type, uh, one of our Zen-based instance type. Uh, you can use something, again, from on-prem, what have you, and just install the NVMe drivers, install ENA drivers, and then configure uh, the AMI to have ENA support. Um, one way that you can check to make sure that everything that you just did is going to work is use this, uh, this script. And again, I have all these links at the end, and the slides are going to be on SlideShare, um, but um, this link down here at the bottom will give you a pointer to this. And when you run this, we're going to check for a few things. We're going to check if the NVMe drivers are installed. We're going to check if the ENA drivers are installed. And we're also going to check if the FS tab file is formatted correctly. So we need to make sure that the devices that you're actually going to be using for boot are in the correct format so the system can boot. And that's the checks that this uh, script will do for you. And in addition to that, you also have to check that the AMI has ENA support. So this, this uh, parameter here at the very end here if for some reason this doesn't return true, if this returns not true or any other value, uh, you'll need to go through these steps to make sure that you have everything um, uh, built and installed and that the AMI is configured. So this URL here walks you through the process of building out the ENA driver, installing the ENA driver, and then also uh, making, the making the configuration change on the AMI after you've built the AMI. Okay, so some settings about Nitro. So now let's, uh, let's think about how we get to, to the point where we're actually tuning uh, for your application. So um, you should have an instance type in your mind. You should maybe already are running on instances. You have a good idea what AMI you're going to use. So let's start thinking about threads. And um, again, a vCPU uh, is going to be a thread on an, X80, on an x86 physical core. So anytime you see vCPU, Cut that number in half, and that's going to be the total number of physical cores. And this could be a concern for CPU-heavy applications. And what I encourage all of our customers to do is to test with both. So test with hyperthread, test, uh, excuse me, test with threading, and test without threading. And hopefully you, you can get a, a decent indication as to what, what your performance is going to do with both. And so that said, so one, one quick way to do this is with this command here. So this is using the, the thread siblings list uh, to be able to pull out the list of threads uh, that are running extra, the extra threads that are running on each of the cores. And then we'll just do an echo zero into the online devices file. And what's nice about this is that uh, just with a, with a quick edit on this guy, you can switch back and forth real quick and say, okay, now I want all CPUs to be um, to be enabled. That, that is, I want threads across all uh, cores. Go back. To, now I only want one thread per core. And you can go back and forth. You can test your application and see the performance both with and without. Another way to do this is something that we announced earlier this year. So this is CPU options. Um, 
And this one actually snuck up on me a little bit. Uh, it was like two or three weeks ago. We actually had this show up on the console, which I had a colleague point out to me earlier in the week this week. Um, but I've been just running this at the command line. Uh, and so what we can see here here is in the core count and threads per core, I'm specifying the number of cores that I want and then the threads per core. And in this case, this is a Z1D 12x large that has 24 cores. So essentially what I'm asking for is just give me one thread per core. Now this can, this can actually be a benefit for applications, performance, what have you, but this can also be taken advantage of if you're trying to figure out uh, uh, cost optimization for licensing or for other things, you know, just trying to, to dial your CPUs down to exactly what you need. So uh, some flexibility in that command makes it really nice. And then down here, you can verify this uh, with the, the describe instances command, part of the AWS CLI. And this is just uh, reflecting the values down there. Third way, um, you can do this at uh, the kernel command line. And throughout this talk, I have uh, several uh, kernel command line settings. I'm not gonna dive in uh, too deep on the next steps there. So sometimes you have to build, depending on your operating system level, you actually have to run a command to build out your, your boot files. Other operating systems you don't, what have you. But um, just point, pointing that out here, that max CPU set to 24 is going to be what would be the same result of the, the two previous commands, just taking out the extra threads on each of those cores. All right. I keep on pointing this. And to verify this, uh, you can use the lscpu extended uh, command, which is actually really handy. And what you'll see here is um, in the cores column, you can see, so four from the left, you can see 0101. So I only have two cores, but I actually have four CPUs, so two threads per core. After I disable that in the bottom, though, you can see I only have one thread per core, and the other two are uh, offline. Okay, so clock source on a Zen-based hypervisor. So um, again, I'll pause there for a second. Just I know that there's a lot of content here, and I and there's it's it's you know pretty technical information, and uh, again. Um, please uh, reach out to us if, uh, if you have any questions on this stuff. But um, we'll, we'll go forward here, and I'll teach you a little bit more about uh, clock sources. So um, clock source on, on a Zen-based hypervisor. Uh, so timekeeping is a tricky thing anyway. Right? So the idea of where to pull that clock source from um, and um, making sure that it's set, cor set correctly uh, could lead to, uh, uh, you know, to negatively impact or positively impact your application. Um, on the Zen-based hypervisor, you probably should be setting this to TSC. Again, one of those things that you can test with and without. TSC is this timestamp counter, and what that does is that uh, it moves that clock source down to the, to the hardware rather than stuck in the hypervisor uh, with the Zen hypervisor. Um, one note here about the nitro-based instances is that we use the KVM clock by default, and the performance that you're going to see with a nitro-based instance using a KVM clock, and then uh, the performance that you would see on a Zen-based instance using a TSC clock is going to be almost identical. It's going to be very similar in, in, um, in performance. So how do we do that? How do we actually make this tuning? So this is a, an, a quick application I wrote. Um, this is just a, a C um, uh, compile. And what it does is that it makes a bunch of calls here to uh, the get time of day function. Um, and if we run that with uh, the Zen, uh, with the clock source set to Zen, um, you can see here that we're spending about 99.99% of our time and get time of day. And the elapsed time is uh, just over 10 seconds. So now if we actually go through the process of making the change, of changing, T uh, changing the clock over to TSC, we can do that a couple of ways. One, we can just uh, echo TSC into the uh, current clock source device file, or we can set clock source equal to TSC in the kernel, in the kernel command line. And you can check this uh, by running a simple cat 
on the uh, current clock source device file, it should re uh, return TSC. So if we rerun that same application, uh, strace that app, and now we can see we have no time in get time of day, or at least it's off the, you know, it's not measurable. And our time has gone down all the way to just over two seconds. So have a look at TSC uh, for the clock source on Zen-based hypervisors. Uh, also, one note about um, setting this as well is this can actually help with networking performance as well. So if you have network-heavy applications, you might want to try this with and without uh, TSC. Processor state control. So um, processor state control is available on um, some of our instances, and I have the list down here. Uh, but what it amounts to is that you'll need at least a socket on an Intel-based instance. And what is C state? What is P state? So C states are the, are the sleep, essentially. And so what, um, when the processes are actually um, sitting idle, and uh, this can actually negatively in impact uh, the performance on certain applications, um, because latency applications are expecting those CPUs to be ready to go. But if they're sleeping, Essentially, they have to be woken up so they can actually run the next construction. P states, which actually aren't, aren't available on Nitro instances because we handle that uh, the boost for you. Um, but this is when uh, a CPU's frequency is going to change up and down. And this, again, will depend on what the state of the other uh, uh, CPUs is going to be. And I have a bunch of detail here. Or excuse me. I have a URL that has a bunch of detail here. Um, uh, specifically on which instance types and um, uh, some more detail. But uh, here's a, if it's going to click, um, this is how you actually make the setting change. So on the top here, I have the, the C states, uh, which is the Intel idle max C state equal to one. And then you can turn off turbo just at the command line just by saying yes to no here. You're essentially that's what I'd like to think of it as, because you're saying echo one into no turbo. So you're turning off turbo here, and you set the, the C state up there to one. So let's look at the performance differences there. So using TurboStat, great utility. Stress, also another great utility. So you're running a TurboStat on stress on just two CPUs. And you can see over here in the far left uh, where the two CPUs are actually active. So this is on a, a C4, 8x large, which has a gigahertz, a base frequency of uh, 2.9 gigahertz. So you can see that our gigahertz are kind of all over the place here. Um, but you can see we also have a lot of CPUs that are way over here in the C6 state, right? So if we make these changes and we rerun the same command, we can now see that the gigahertz are right down the line. So 2.9 across the entire system. And all of the CPUs are now in the C1 state, ready to accept these instructions. So those latency-sensitive applications should respond much better and much faster. And so again, one of those things that you just test with and without these settings, uh, but definitely have a look at this uh, for performance. So uh, Zen spin lock, so kernel locking. This is one of those ones that seems to fly under everybody's radar. Um, when I talk to customers about this, they generally have, uh, may have not heard about it or they don't think it was important. But this one can actually um, get you some pretty quick performance without much work. So just setting a Zen no PV spin um, and disabling this uh, allows you to get closer to bare metal locking, so CPU scheduling. So they're, trying to get that, that time on the CPU, but it's not able to, so it's sitting there and it's spinning and it's spinning. Well, we don't want that to happen in the hypervisor. So if we get it lower than that, we actually get it closer to the bare metal, hopefully that's going to result in better performance for your applications. And this might, this might be more applicable to uh, older applications or applications that may not be able to handle threads quite as cleanly, um, but definitely something that should be looked at for uh, Zen-based hypervisors. NUMA controls. So um, first off, you're going to need more than one socket. So if you're running on one of our smaller instances uh, that's only on one socket, um, this is not really something to concern yourself with. But if you're running on one of our largest instances or our larger instances, uh, this is something that you should definitely think about. So non-uniform memory access. And what that means is that we're trying to go from 
a memory that's on one socket to a memory that's on another socket, and the amount of time to access that memory is going to be different, so uh, non-uniform access. Uh, so how do we actually fix this? How do we control it? Okay. Uh, first thing, let's check out where our zones are. So LSCPU, Gretnuma, and that's going to work on either an Intel or an AMD. Um, if you look at uh, the application itself, does it fit in a single socket? Well, does it make sense to actually turn off Numa awareness altogether? Again, one of those things that you should be testing with and without. Um, um, but definitely, if, the, if it's running on a single socket, it might be a great candidate uh, for disabling uh, Numa awareness. If you wanted to look at more fine-grain control, um, you can look at the Numa control command. So the two commands that I have here, the top one binds to a particular node or zone, and then the second one is actually going to bind to a CPU or a set of CPUs. Um, but this gives you a little bit more fine-grained detail, fine-grained uh, um, uh, control of your NUMA zones. Um, another quick call out here to networking tuning as well. So uh, this can also be used to enhance networking and, uh, again, for networking um, uh, intensive applications, uh, something to be considered as well. User limits. Um, I, leave the, I always leave this slide in here to remind myself that we, you, know, you have to remember to talk to your users first and um, talk to them about their limits first. Um, because I can't tell you how many times, like specifically the stack size, uh, you know, we'll go to fire up an application and it fails miserably because we haven't done just basic user limit setting. So, not too much detail here, other than just a quick reminder to everybody that have a, have a quick chat with your, your engineers, your, um, you know, your tool programmers, whoever they are, just sit down with them and ask them about the requirements for their application. So definitely uh, something to be thinking about as, you th as you're doing uh, performance tuning on AWS. This isn't a storage talk. Um, but I will dive in a little bit about instant store. So I got some feedback uh, from the last talk that I should have gone real deep on EBS. Um, EBS, uh, you know, is I would consider to be a fairly deep storage topic uh, because if you talk about EBS, you have to talk about all of the storage options on AWS, which is a lot. So uh, let's talk a little bit about instant store. So this is temporary block level storage. And what does that mean? That means that if you shut down the instance or if you terminate the instance, that data is gone. If you reboot the instance, the data will persist. But again, if you shut down the instance or if you terminate the instance, um, or if there's, some, if there's a failure on the instance, you're going to lose the data that was on those disks. So if you have data that is important, if you have data that you need, move that data off to a persistent store as soon as possible, whether that's an EBS volume, S3, somewhere else that you know that you have uh, that data backed up and somewhere that you can actually get to. You can add some local um, durability here, as I point out here in the, the bottom right, with uh, a RAID set. So you know, pick your RAID flavor, 1, 5, 6, 10, whatever the case is, uh, to be able to build out some local durability. But that still doesn't protect you from uh, being able to uh, withstand a, uh, a termination or an accidental termination, uh, you know, an intentional shutdown or what have you. So again, if your data is important, please move it off to a persistent store as soon as possible. All that said, and hopefully I've warned you plenty to move your data off of these drives as soon as possible, is, you can probably sense I've had customers saying, is there any way I can get that data back? And unfortunately, we just, it's, it's, we really can't do it. Um, so i3 instances have up to eight NVMe volumes. You raid these guys together. It yields a file system of about 15 terabytes. And you get up to 16 gigabytes a second of throughput local access, right? Three million IOPS on this guy as well. Um, so not only in the i3 instances, but as you've seen, again, the C5D, the M5D, the Z1D, local NVMe storage, you know, very fast storage that you can use for all kinds of things. So you can build out your own file servers, parallel distributed file servers, 
if you're leveraging um, ZFS, uh, ZFS actually has some nice options that allow you to take advantage of some local NVMe volumes. Uh, you can use it for local scratch base. Um, so there are lots of use cases for uh, local NVMe volumes. Uh, one quick note about uh, encryption on these guys. So we do do encryption on these, but it's on a hardware module that's local to the instance. So now that we've talked about AMIs, we've talked about instance types, we've talked about all this tuning, we've talked about um, uh, storage, we've talked about all kinds of things. So how do, we, how do we actually put this together? How do we actually start to build out the infrastructure on AWS? There's a couple of really exciting things going on in AWS. Um, on AWS, we, we make our own proprietary network, right? So we have a 10 gigabits, a 25 gigabits, and now at Peterstock, you heard him announce that we now have up to 100, gigabit, 100 gigabits of network throughput, which is it's crazy, and I'm really excited about that, and I'm really excited to see how you guys are going to be able to take advantage of that. So our network supports nearly 3 million packets per second. So uh, this is a reduced jitter, low latency, high performance network, high throughput network, um, where customers will see consistent performance, right? So um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of networking technologies out there, but what we find is that as customers move workloads to AWS, that they get these real consistent runs. They're not seeing these, these big, um, uh, you know, these big data points and these outliers of data points and saying, well, I wonder what happened to the network here. On AWS, what we find is that their runs are the same or nearly, nearly the same across all of their runs. Um, also, uh, the EC2 uh, uh, throughput back to Amazon S3 is going to be up to 25 gigabits, um, but that will have to be over multiple streams to get that full throughput. So some network performance um, uh, suggestions. First off, use cluster placement groups, right? So think MPI, think HPC, think tightly coupled. Uh, that's where you want to start for the high performance networks. Uh, we also have some instance types that will support uh, MTU uh, settings. So I have a couple of URLs down here that actually have some of the enhanced networking information, but also has some information about MTU. And again, all these slides will be on SlideShare. Um, another thing that you can do is use multiple elastic network interfaces for different parts of your workloads. So you can use uh, one interface for uh, file systems, you can use another interface. For connecting instances, you can use another interface. For web servers, databases, whatever the case is. But using more uh, network interfaces should lead to better throughput on the entire instance and may make a, a huge improvement in the, the overall flow of the workload. And for the last, or excuse me, yes, sorry. For the last two, uh, for uh, um, setting up different interrupts for packet receives and receive side steering here. I'm not going to go into too, detail, too much detail here, but definitely something, again, that you should consider when you're thinking about networking performance. We have some really good detailed information down in these links here on how to set that up, and um, it's actually a little bit out of the scope of this, of this talk because it really goes into the detail there. And at Peter's talk, um, uh, you heard him announce this huge announcement. So on C5N and on the P3DN, we announced that we have up to 100 gigabits of networking bandwidth uh, with our elastic fabric adapter, uh, really suited for HPC workloads. Again, those really tightly workloads that really need this high throughput bandwidth. So again, really excited about this and really looking forward to seeing how customers leverage this. Okay, so. We've talked about a little bit about infrastructure. We've talked um, you know, a fair amount about instances. We've talked about AMIs. We've talked about choosing the right AMI and the hypervisors and all the tuning and all of the um, suggestions that I have here. Hopefully, you're starting to put together a plan, an action plan. How am I going to turn, tune my applications on AWS? What is going to be the first set of commands? What were the first set of parameters that I, I, I should actually think about tweaking and tuning. And so some of the tools that I have here have actually led me to the right place and given me really good direction for that. Um, so let's, let's dive into tools a little bit. So LS Topo, 
Um, so ls topo is a really handy command, part of the HW. So this is, um, these are, you know, all of these are yum install commands, so you can get these off of a yum repo. Uh, but one of the cool things about this command, well, there's several cool things, um, but one of the cool things about this command is down at the bottom here, you can see the cores and the threads. So if you need another place to check how many threads you're running per core, this is another great way to do that. You can see this a per core basis. You can see this th that we're actually running two threads per core, so we have four threads on two cores. Um, and then you can also see L1 instruction cache, L1 data cache, but also L2, L3 main memory, and then some of the I.O. components on the right side. And this command is ASCII art. So I didn't, this is not a PNG that I produced and then I cut and pasted into the presentation. I ran this command from the command line exactly like that, and this is the exact output. If your terminal supports colors, you're going to get this nice, pretty formatted uh, set of information that you can get a really good indication of what the architecture of the instance is. Um, I didn't have a lot of real estate for the, for the deck, so what I get is uh, on a Z1D uh, extra large. Now, if you had a Z1D 12 extra large, this would be a lot more information, I, and it would have been an eye chart if I would have posted that. So TurboStat, I mentioned this briefly before, uh, but this is the command that I would recommend and that we're recommending for, um, uh, for determining what the uh, clock values are for your instances. And the reason is, is that LSCPU and, cot, um, and um, catting proc CPU info are going to be probably going to be reporting the base frequencies. So if you use this command, and this is actually showing this under load, you're going to see the correct values here. So in this case, again, this is on the Z1D 12X large, and this is pegged at four gigahertz across all those CPUs. So again, it's very handy command to see what the processes are doing, and gives you also an indication of sleep uh, states as well. HTOP, another really handy command. I've had so many users, customers come to me and say, I know I'm running across the entire machine. I, I know I am. And we fire up HTOP, and they're literally all in one core. And what they thought was a multi-core application was a single core, not even a multi-threaded application, right? So it gives you some real good indi quick indication, and I consider this to be a, you know, a visual representation, even though this is a command line tool uh, of what's going on with the system, of what's going on on your core. So this is, this is again, on a Z1D 12X large. Um, this is with uh, the extra threads turned off, so I only have one threads per core. Uh, but if I had two threads per core, instead of seeing 24 there, you would see 48. So you can see both uh, uh, multi-thread per core and with single thread per core as well. NetHogs. Um, again, another, another very handy command that I've used. Uh, I've seen customers come to me and say, all this bandwidth is, is going nowhere. I have no idea where this is going. You look at their CloudWatch logs and you can just see their, their networking going through the roof. We bring this up and within seconds they say, I know that what that process is or I know who that user is. And right away they're able to, to, to figure out and dissect exactly how to troubleshoot the next steps. So really good command, definitely one for the toolbox. So perf, perf has an amazing amount of options, right? So this is just like a, a you know, just a, a super simple um, uh, command, just a perf stat on, a, on an eBusy, which just keeps the system busy. Um, but definitely dive into this tool. There are all kinds of options and graphs and all kinds of metrics that you can pull out of perf, very handy command. iPerf3. Um, I know I told you guys not to do much testing with uh, synthetic benchmarking. This is the only one that I encourage customers to do first. So uh, a lot of times customers will bring up instances. They'll say, this is, you know, this is going to perform well. We set up everything right. They run, and they don't get very good performance. Um, and this is obviously a, you know, a network-based application. So one thing that I encourage customers to do is just fire up iPer3. It's super fast, um, it, it, it's to install. Um, it's, it's, there's no configuration, just run at the command line. Um, but it will give you an indication of what you're getting across two instances. So 
uh, something I do encourage customers to use uh, initially and um, in, gives you some good direction as to what the network performance is. This is between two uh, Z1D 12X large uh, instances again. And what you'll see at the bottom here is that the advertised speed for this guy is 25 gigabits, and we're, ne and we're getting nearly line rate across that. Okay, so some additional information. Uh, news blog, so Jeff Barr's blog. Hopefully you guys have been following Jeff Barr's blog this week. Uh, some, it's, it's just crazy to try to keep up with all the announcements. You know, it's, there's so many things going on. So, it's just so exciting, and it's such an exciting week uh, for, here, uh, for us here at reInvent. So really excited to be a part of this, and Jeff is always a really good source of all this information. So have a look there. Instance types, all kinds of information are, are, is going to be posted there. Um, a call out to this EDA white paper. So um, I'm not plugging this, plugging this just because I co-authored this. Um, I'm plugging this because it has nearly everything that I've talked about here today is already in this white paper. Um, and it's going to be continue to be revised. So we're working on another revision right now. I'm going to be adding to it. Uh, hopefully by the end of the year, even adding more content and some of the new instance information uh, there as well. Okay, so that's the summary. That's where we've, we've started with infrastructure, dove into instances and performance and tools, and hopefully, again, you guys have a really good understanding, a really good indication of where you're going to start and, tune your, and start tuning performance on AWS. These are the resources. Um, uh, that, you, that I was talking about before, so a couple pages of those. And then don't forget, uh, tomorrow night is replay. And just so you guys know, this is, uh, you know, just to let you guys know, I am going to be the guest DJ there. No, 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 that's not true. I just wanted to see you could react. <laughs> yeah, that's a, you guys still awake. Okay, good. I'm not going to be the desk DJ. In any case, um, show up to replay, have a good time. Thank you for coming to reInvent. Um, thank you for letting me present. I really enjoy helping customers, so really looking forward to helping you guys uh, get good performance out of your applications. Thank you.